The following is brought to you by Andy Beach, Paul Boyer, and Will Harris. gentlemen and welcome to the july 10th edition of the politics 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 podcast i'm your old pal justin robert young we've got a lot to talk about uh good mailbag this week we are uh we've got a few thoughts about kanye someone calling me out on a freezing cold take from the beginning of the pandemic discussions of al smith The 1928 Democratic (laughs) candidate for president. You know, like the kids are clamoring for. Really, it's more of a conversation about uh, the early 20th century immigrant experience in light of what we have seen with the Black Lives Matter protests. Uh, We're going to talk about Supreme Court justices. We are going to talk about Florida saying that they are opening up schools and whether or not New Zealand believes that Jazane Maxwell will kill herself. But really, the reason to listen to this episode is we got a great interview, uh, specifically discussing the motivating factor of rage and anger and how it differs amongst the racial cohorts that go to vote for president. It's an awesome interview, and it explores some really interesting themes. I very much hope you guys appreciate it. But first! Let's update the 2020 race for the presidency. We've got a few minor updates. Donald Trump last night went on Sean Hannity's program on Fox News Channel. And the largest talking point that emerged from it was his rolling out of this specific talking point. America, when you look at these two old men side by side, Donald Trump 2020 would like to ask you this question which of the two has the mushiest brain well yeah the answer is yes absolutely but you know he he meant the covid test the covid test he didn't mean cognitive he meant covid no he said cognitive i'm pretty i'm pretty sure he he, he didn't mean that because you know you don't have those tests that often he said i take them all the time and no he meant covid but I think he was confused by the, the question and the words and everything else. He, he didn't mean that because he hasn't taken any cognitive tests because he couldn't pass one. I actually took one when I uh, very recently when I uh, when I was, you know, the radical left was saying, is he all there? Is he all there? And I proved I was all there because I, I aced it. I aced the test. 
and he should take the same exact test, a very standard test. I took, took it at Walter Reed Medical Center uh, in front of doctors, and they were very surprised. They said, that's an unbelievable thing. Rarely does anybody do what you just did. Weird flex, but okay. Biden, meanwhile, rolled out an economic policy that is, frankly, forgettable, and if we were in normal times, it would probably elicit rage from the progressives. But to be fair, there is really only one story. One story from which all other stories flow, and it's a story that was trending well for Trump until this week. COVID-19. See, I say that it was trending well for Trump because in a world where a downward death trend that we have seen over the last few months continues and trickles into single digits by convention time, even though there is a gaudy rise in cases, it would play into the Trump narrative. The idea that we are treating this better, that's good leadership by Trump. That it might indeed be less deadly than we thought it was. That plays in to Donald Trump's handling of it. But most importantly, that everything bad you ever heard about Donald Trump's handling of COVID was yet another example of a hostile media that is there to damage him and his presidency. Pay attention to what matters. He could say, human life. Well, that's not a position that he can take as of this week. Because when you look at the toll of human life, the trend is headed in the wrong direction. The odd thing about COVID death curves, he said while exhaling his clove cigarette through black lipstick, is that they are oddly similar across countries. This is a weird fixation of mine, but the height of a daily death total two months to the day is usually 10% of what it was. So, for example, in the U.S., the height was around 2,700 dead in one day. Two months later, we saw around 270 dead in one day. And indeed, since April, we've seen a steady downtick in deaths until this week. This week, we saw something that we had not seen since the beginning of June. Death tolls in the 800 and 900 range. Part of this at the beginning of the week could be blamed on a, a, a long weekend with the Independence Day holiday. But we're beyond the accounting catching up to itself at this point. We've got more death, and it is more death per day than we have seen in the past two months. This is a resurgence, and it hampers any narrative that cases are totally separated from deaths, which had been what the numbers were telling us up until this week. While America is only a global leader in cases because we are testing to a level beyond any country in the world, aside from China, whose numbers I don't believe, 
We are unique in seeing a second rise in deaths. A bimodal curve, as a friend of mine once warned we would see from this pandemic. For Trump, this is bad. It's a public failure that is beginning to creep into game time. 67% of Americans disprove of how he's handled the pandemic, according to an ABC Ipsos poll that came out today. That marks the highest dissatisfaction rate thus far, and it was likely taken before this week. Meanwhile, Democrats are sharpening their knives. I said weeks ago, when the GOP decided that they wanted to move their convention to a site where they could have a physical rally, it was a bet. A bet saying that COVID in August would be more in the rear view mirror than it was in June. That a physical rally would feel more like getting back to normal as spearheaded by bold leadership, specifically in comparison to the timid Democrats that wanted to sit in their basement. But if COVID is not in the rearview mirror, then the Democrats look very smart by taking everything virtual. Prudent in a way that the rash president isn't. Quote the CEO of the Democratic National Convention Committee. Each party's approach to convention planning seems to mirror the way in which we've chosen to respond to this crisis. While Democrats acknowledge the severity of the pandemic and are taking proactive steps to prevent more people from getting sick, the Trump administration is moving forward with reckless plans that ignore the public health landscape in service of the president's ego." End quote. The DNC will be very focused on Trump's COVID response because the majority of Americans are on their side in saying he's done a bad job. Throughout a lot of this process, specifically with the economy and the pandemic, I found myself saying, these are valleys for the president. And there's time to get out of it. And there still is. Now, we're months away from the election, and if 2020 has taught us anything, it's that we have no idea what will happen between then and now. But I do feel confident saying this. For each week we see a rise in deaths, it becomes harder to assume Trump can win. They asked me, did I go deep in my bag? And I tell them, I showed it. Welcome, friends, to the Friday mailbag. Of course, you can always reach me about your thoughts on the podcast. The Young American at gmail.com. We begin with Michael. Michael says, 
thank you, jury, for making it easy to skip, skip the K stuff on July 8th's podcast. He can't even bring himself to type Kanye. Well, I guess that seals it. No more Kanye talk. People were excited to skip it. Ian writes, stop apologizing about Kanye. I want to hear more whenever possible. Oh, jeez. Once you make them like you, make them unlike you, huh? Huh, yay? Jason says, I remember that you said that you thought all the CEOs were staking their jobs on their responses to the coronavirus after Trump brought them up in the Rose Garden and paraded them around. I have yet to see a testing site in a Target or Walmart parking lot. I have yet to really hear about any real involvement from most of those companies since. So, Jason has called me on an extremely freezing cold take, and I will take the L on it. I assumed that there would be blowback on some of the companies if they did not live up to the promises that they were making on national television. Uh, as it turns out, the world has been so chaotic that nobody even really remembers that press conference. Yeah, I, I, I'm just going to take the L. Like there's, there's, I, I, I didn't even want to go through the list of CEOs. I know that some of them were more medical uh, equipment companies. And, and in those cases, I do think that there were involvements, but no, I'm already trying to defend myself. I'm already trying to defend myself. I will not defend myself. I'll take the L big old L for your boy germs. You can't spell jury without the L Mike writes. Al Smith broke ground as being the first Catholic presidential candidate and being anti-prohibition. It was funny that a Catholic New Yorker swept the Deep South in the 1928 election. Prohibition was repealed shortly, but it took 32 years until JFK for another Catholic to run to get the nomination and then win in 1960. But many of Al Smith's ideas and policies were later used by FDR. The great immigrant wave of 1900 to 1920 uh, brought many people to the U.S. rooted in old world religions, Catholics, Jews, Greek Orthodox. But they were all in favor of socialism, the labor, the labor movement, and anti-prohibition. The Red Square squashed socialism, but the immigrants changed America. The melting pot worked for most of them, but racism is still with us. So I wanted to read this because I, I do want to compare and contrast because I don't think that there are one-to-one -one comparisons between some of the protests that we have seen and some of the thought that we have put into our racial divides in comparison to the immigrant wave that came in and, by the way, brought my family, your boy, Jerbs, not here talking to you right now. If it's not for this immigrant wave at, at, at the very beginning of the 1900s, how slow that moved. But meanwhile, how much that has to chafe our black community that were here before the immigrants came in. They've watched generation after generation 
of a, a wave of immigrants come in, get uh, 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 viscerally hated by those in power, and then in the intervening 120 years, get subsumed by the majority. You know, now Italians and Irish, this is this is part of the white cohort. You don't even really break it out. I mean, culturally or ethnically, maybe, but like in terms of who controls the levers of power, it is still disproportionately not black people. And that is something that I think, you know, just deserves to be said. Dean writes, in discussing how Trump could not lose terribly in the fall, people have brought up clearing out a spot on the Supreme Court and running on appointing a new justice, essentially repeating 2016. Supposedly, they'll talk Clarence Thomas into retiring. Good luck with that. And Republicans will have to turn out to avoid having Joe Biden control the nomination. But that assumes that these on-the-fence voters fear what Joe Biden's pick would be. If he comes up with a nomination list of moderate justices and convinces voters that he'll pick somebody based on judicial experience rather than ideology, that could demotivate a lot of tweet-fatigued conservatives. In fact, Biden could start doing damage uh, right now if he started talking about his future picks and hinting that he'll leave Mitch's cocaine-trained judiciary in place rather than try to bend them leftwards. Will Trump end up shooting himself in the foot here? So this is something that I just got wind of yesterday, that apparently this is the new gambit. The new gambit is retire a conservative justice, and Clarence Thomas would be the guy. I mean, it seems so Charlie Day in the basement, uh, uh, you know, being too clever by half. You you would literally want to heighten the stakes of the election. I mean, again, if you can't run, if if if, if you can't run and win as an incumbent, then just take the L. Like there's there's no way you're going to to put a hood ornament and fenders that's going to make this jalopy look better. Trump still has a very, very motivated base. I still think this is going to be a close election, but I I don't think heightening the stakes necessarily gets him closer. Skip, writes, I am born and raised in Florida. I think that the current plan to reopen schools in the fall is stupid. It's based on bad science that ignores both spread of infection and the newer idea that COVID-19 can be considered airborne. Placing a plexiglass barrier between students is theater and a waste of funds. Mask breaks are stupid and a dangerous idea. Social distancing in classroom is next to impossible when the HVAC systems can't move enough air to clear the rooms. When state educators and school districts can do is support their students in remote learning, either via live instruction or pre-recorded lessons. The flexibility is available. Hell, Florida has a statewide virtual school system that's accessible for all students. 
In most cases, this is an argument for access. Spend money to outfit students with Chromebooks. Get disenfranchised students access to the internet they need. Allow a flexible school day so that students can work in the evening if that's required. Use school buses to provide access to free and discounted meals like they do in the summer. Schools need teachers. Now we have more teachers to teach our kids remotely. This could help with some of our unemployment as well. You know, Skip, uh, this you've actually given me an idea. I might have to uh, uh, do yet more nepotism on this program and bring on two experts on this subject, uh, my brother and my sister-in-law, who are indeed Florida parents and have their own uh, podcast called the Young Family Podcast. If you want to hear uh, my brother, or what my brother sounds like, it's it's kind of like me. It's kind of weird. Just going to let you know. But him and his uh, uh, wife, Carolyn, have two beautiful kids, my niece and nephew, and they have followed this school stuff very, very closely because their oldest is just now getting into school range and it matters more to them. So, uh, number one, go check out the Young Family Podcast, but I might need to bring them on to talk about this. Sam writes, it seems like Radio New Zealand is thinking the same thing you are when it comes to Ghislaine Maxwell. Turn her cell into the Truman Show and see if that'll keep her alive. So, I don't know where I said this. In many ways, I have way too many opportunities to share my opinions, and I don't keep track of where I've shared them. But I very much believe that considering Jeffrey Epstein's suicide and all the questions surrounding it, we need a 24-7 live feed of Miss Maxwell. I, I don't think that we should settle for anything less. We all need to see her in her cell at all times because I don't trust any of it. If, if, if Ghislaine Maxwell kills herself under suspicious circumstances like Epstein did, I'm going to have to... I'm going to have to bring on Joe Yuzinski again, our, our conspiracy theory expert, and just be like, sorry, man, I'm off the reservation. Like, I'm all in on this one. I'm all in that these people had too many names to be named, and they got got for it. All right. That'll be it for the mailbag today. Theyoungamerican at gmail.com is where you go if you want to be part of it. Guys, it's it it's still still reverberating in my soul that we are up over the uh, uh, thousand patron mark. But you want to know what? That was yesterday. Let's keep looking forward. Uh, uh, I I want everybody just to feel good. Feel good. Feel good today. Feel good if you're listening to this and you like it. You want to know why you're gonna feel good? You're gonna feel good because. There are other people like you that think this kind of content is worth it. Feel good because you, if you're at the $3 club, are getting two bonus podcasts. 
feel good if you're at the $10 tier and you're gonna hear your name in a couple minutes. Feel good if you're in the big tent. One buck, one buck, just to show that you think PX3 is something that should keep going. I feel good about you. You guys should feel good about yourself. Take politics seriously.com. And, you know, go there. Also, become a patron this week because I'm going to do another uh, another survey. It was about a year ago. I did a survey which really shaped what this show has become. And this show has exploded in listeners. It's exploded in financial support. It has exploded in so many ways. And it was because I cleared out my ears and actually listened to you. So we got another survey coming out. It's going to go to patrons first because, quite frankly, I I, I want to I know. I want to know your guys' opinion. So if you want to get that survey first, head on over there. Uh, uh, TakePoliticsSeriously.com and just keep being awesome. Feel good. Our guest today is Davin Phoenix. He's an associate professor of political science at UC Irvine, specializing in race, emotions, and political behavior in U.S. politics. He's the author of The Anger Gap, How Race Shapes Emotion in Politics, and you can follow him on Twitter at Davin underscore Phoenix. Welcome to the show, Davin. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to this conversation. So this is a a, a topic that I, I think is is extraordinarily interesting when we're talking about uh, uh, elections, but also really uh, uh, just how politics is shaped specifically in our modern era as there is uh, so much uh, conversation and, and action on race issues uh in your book the the anger gap how race shapes emotion in politics uh what is what what are the broad strokes in terms of the differences of how anger motivates different uh, racial groups here in america sure so much of the conventional wisdom when you look at politics and political science or psychology even kind of campaigns and people that are doing the work of mobilizing folks have this understanding that if you want to get people more active in politics a great way to do that is to make them angry because when we're angry, we feel slighted and we feel a real strong motivation to right that wrong. We also feel less risk averse, more impulsive. So that's a really golden ticket for getting people off the sidelines and onto the playing field. But my, I find in my research that an anger doesn't work to get everyone off the sidelines. White Americans are indeed uh, willing to express their anger over the party that they don't like or regimes that they don't like, policies they don't like, and that anger indeed is very strongly, positively associated with them doing the work of shifting outcomes, whether it is contacting local officials or canvassing, donating to campaigns, uh, you know, taking part in election activities, and even a wide range of other activities. But I find that for African Americans and also Latinx and Asian Americans, that anger isn't doing that same work. First of all, those groups are actually less prone less likely or less willing to express their anger over the parties, regimes, policies they don't like. And when they do express that anger, it's not translating nearly as effectively towards those same types of actions. When people of color are 
expressing that anger, it's more likely to translate to actions that challenge the system from the outside, such as protests, demonstrations, marches, and boycotts. So that's kind of the two elements of that anger gap. People of color less willing to express that anger and in that translating to a, as wide a range of political activities. So, and specifically that this is something where you're motivating somebody into the the voting booth, right? For like, sure, yeah. yeah. We're seeing that uh, people of color, when they're expressing that anger, it's not translating to the voting booth or affecting election outcomes. How much of this has to do, uh, you know, with just the, the, the cultural uh, touchstones around our, our racial divides that, that for... Uh, uh, white Americans, it might feel like going to the voting booth uh, matters in a way that it, it might not for, for non-white voters. That's a very big part of it. You know, when we think about emotions, we tend to think about feelings that are tied to an individual and kind of the psychological element. But, you know, the emotions we express and how they shape what we do and don't do is just as much shaped by the culture that we're in and kind of the structures we're in. And so I find, particularly for African-Americans, there's often a hesitancy to express that anger because people don't want to be labeled or stigmatized as the angry black man, angry black woman. They don't want to have their claims delegitimized by kind of being dismissed by that label. They don't want to maybe be subject to greater scrutiny or surveillance. And so beyond that, when you think about getting angry, as opposed to getting just frustrated or anxious, right, or disappointed, what differentiates anger is that we feel as though we can right that wrong that's happened to us. We feel less of control. And many African-Americans and people of color more broadly don't necessarily perceive that same sense of political control or influence. And so they can certainly look at elections as instrumental and maybe minimizing harm, but they might not view elections as providing the same routes of policy responsiveness to the group as their white counterparts. And so whereas folks that are angry about something in politics but trust in the system, they can say, well, I can – get this right, get this wrong right within the system, right? I can just boot out this team, put in that team. I can root out this policy, support this policy. Uh, people of color might not have that same confidence, and so that saps them of that same sense of motivation to act within the system. Uh, what, in your research, have you seen is an effective uh, uh, way to provoke anger from white voters and and uh, if there's if there's a way that you could give an example on on either side of the ideological spectrum both conservative and liberal sure so we very often see uh conservatives being kind of mobilized by anger and appeals rooted in we see it uh kind of even today right so we can see kind of talking points by trump about the loss of status or the loss of something represented by Confederate statues being pulled down. That messaging is in, uh, intended to generate anger, right? Well, they are unfairly or wrongfully denying or taking down this element of our heritage or this part of our story. And so we're really no stranger to appeals to anger and often for conservatives, especially as the regime that's kind of in power at the federal level and in the majority of state governments across the U.S., right? The appeals aren't necessarily rooted in uh, inability to affect policy because they are kind of the majority. So the appeals to anger are rooted in kind of more symbolic or cultural social losses of status, right? So we can think about the 
detriment against political correct discourse or cancel culture, right? How these are kind of leveraging a sense of anger from people, even if they have political power to feel, oh, well, we don't have social power, we don't have cultural power or dominance like we want. On the flip side, we can think about people on the ideological left being mobilized by anger about, well, on the one hand, just being locked out of the majority chamber in politics in many of the states, or of course at the national level within the judiciary, right? Being very aware that some of the policy points that they value are not kind of being advanced in the agenda. So we can think about people that are dismayed by the recent decision by ICE, for instance, to say that if international students can't attend classes uh, in person, they have to leave the country, right? People are incensed because they have a sense of empathy for this group and say, well, this is wrong, right? They see this as a violation. This is an injustice, right? Giving these people this, denying people this opportunity to stay in the country and continue their learning, right? We can think about how people get angry over lack of access to healthcare or angry about climate change, right? The sense that what we're doing to the earth is wrong and the powers that we are not doing much about it. So whether we're thinking about kind of cultural issues or actual political issues or even some of the crisis defining our time, if people can look at that as some kind of violation of a norm or some kind of example of injustice, we're likely to see them get angry about it. You know, what's fascinating is that in both of those examples that you gave, the animating narrative is we're on the losing side of something that that we that there are things that are beyond our control that are being taken away from us and we need to fight and that moves white voters into the booth and yet for non-white voters whom are literally by the numbers uh, uh not representative on the same level and feel that they're that things are being taken away on a more uh, specific specifically when we look at the protests uh the protests that are happening on on very concrete uh, if not uh visceral examples they are not motivated by those narratives that that's so interesting Absolutely. I understand people can look at that and think, well, no, I just can't really buy that. Right. There's no way that people that might be acutely aware of their lack of representation within the halls of power or kind of the disproportionate lack of responsiveness to their group's demands. I just can't buy a scenario which people of color are kind of expressing less of that anger. But so we can think about how that anger is, again, tied to a fundamental sense of trust that the system is going to respond to your efforts. And again, there's a plenty of negative emotions that people can feel, right, about those battles that they're perpetually on the losing end on. If you are, and I say this as a fan of a uh, you know, basketball team that's been bad for a long time, right? <laughs> Which one? You Which one? Re- you, the Knicks, the New York Knicks. Oh, right? geez, my condolences. Yeah, so thank you. So <laughs> you reach a point where, where you become resigned right, to perpetually being on the losing end of the battle. And you can't muster up the same energy anymore because you've been so kind of, you know, beaten down by the continued accumulating losses. And so I talk about this idea of racial resignation, right? It's not that people are, people of color are not observant, right, or flippant or blasé about being on the losing end of politics. It's that they're like largely resigned to it because it's been largely all they've known or the majority of what they've known from politics. And so rather than consume that energy it takes to get mad over these seemingly unrelenting threats, right, to their socio-political well-being, 
they say, well, you know, a lot of this is just a cost, right, of being part of this numerical or marginalized uh, minority group within the U.S. And so that kind of shifts the calculation quite a bit, right? It's not to say that they're not dissatisfied, but they don't necessarily evoke or activate that same kind of indignant anger, right? Because you can't get angry about something that's kind of a everyday force or reality of your life. So there was a, you know, something that was talked about a lot at the end of the primaries uh, was, you know, Joe Biden's success with older black voters. And this is just my own sort of pet theory with uh, uh, African, the the African-American vote in general, and specifically the older African-American vote, is that even if ideologically there's a candidate that can make a compelling case or by all the, the the numbers and the narratives make a compelling case to those voters that older african-american voters are going to vote with who they think is going to win because even if there is a another candidate that might speak to them if they're a, a flyer if they're a chance if they don't think that they that they're going to go the distance then the cost of not being on the most likely winning team is just going to be too much. Do you think that that theory holds holds weight based on your research? I certainly think that you're hitting the uh, nose in the head, whatever that saying is, because we can think about the kind of sense of precarity or the lack of, uh, or the higher deal, I should say, of risk aversion present in kind of black political decision-making, especially amongst older black people that are very much, you know, staunch, stalwart supporters of the Democratic Party. There's really no question that they're going to the best of their ability show up, right? Whereas, yeah. especially with the younger black cohorts, it's much more variability. And so because of that staunchness, but also because I think they have that ingrained sense of resignation, there is a sense of, well, we can't necessarily afford to take a risk on someone, even if they are closer to our preference point, because we don't necessarily have trust in the rest of the electorate to kind of show up for maybe that candidate. And so I think you definitely see that kind of pragmatism in the kind of unifying support of staunch black voters for uh, Joe Biden. Uh, I think they look at him as more fitting the prototypical presidential candidate and maybe more likely to not have to deal with some of the hurdles based by, right, a less traditional candidate, whether we're talking about someone that's younger or, you know, demographically distinct. And so, yeah, there's a real push and pull there. So I think the same reasons that older black voters might flock to Joe Biden because he's maybe a safe choice is I think the reason he has so much work to do to convince younger black voters who can be really essential to turn out in these battleground states, you know, why they should be supporting him. But I think that generational difference is something that I have noted in that this particular cohort of black Americans, those that are just kind of measured out at 29 and younger, they don't actually exhibit the same anger gap as older black uh, generations or voters. And so I think I see that tension in kind of sets of expectations, sense of entitlements, right, and willingness to get angry. I kind of see that tension in the generational divide over black support for Biden. So th- that's an interesting idea because, you know, when I was in covering the primaries, South Carolina specifically, which wound up being an absolute Biden route led in large part by older black voters. I go to a Bernie rally and there was a lot of younger black voters that were there in support. Is part of that because younger black voters 
are more bought into the system and they might be more willing, like white voters, to say, no, 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 registering my anger now is the right and moral choice because even if we don't win right now, showing this electoral viability matters in a way that the older black voters are maybe too risk averse to take that shot with. Yeah, I think so. we got a couple of things going on. So I think that there is a sense amongst younger black cohorts that we see represented in pretty enthusiastic support for Bernie Sanders, even if it didn't always translate to, you know, the kind of higher turnout he needed. Um, I think there's a sense of, yeah, we should be demanding more from our electoral politics system, that we shouldn't be simply looking to minimize harm. We should be reimagining what constitutes a viable Bernie Sanders and the agenda he's putting forth is much closer to our preference point than the kind of mainstream democratic agenda. We should put our energy behind that. But at the same time, there's still this very pronounced skepticism of the system, and it, I think, manifests in the skepticism about kind of translating that support to Biden and saying, you know, again, because we're not necessarily interested in the vote that will maybe minimize harm, we might find other ways to affect change. And so I think when we look at the groundswell of activism that continues to, you know, kind of serve throughout the nation, we can't necessarily expect the young people that are at the heart of a lot of these movements to translate that energy to the voting booth in November. Because, and this is similar to what we saw in 2016 with a spate of Black Lives Matter uh, protests during the latter half of the Obama year, you know, younger black people were becoming increasingly active in system-challenging forms of politics, protests and demonstrations, those kinds of local organizing, even virtual organizing. And yet that was not translating to higher turnout, right? So there still is this disconnect where younger Black folks are will yes, I am actually angry. I don't care who sees it. I don't care about the labeling. But there's still this kind of fundamental skepticism that says, yeah, I'm going to act on it, but that don't assume I'm going to act on it by you know, voting for another establishment candidate or a kind of mainstream candidate. And so I think that's what people that are concerned about party politics, the future of the Democratic Party, should really be acutely aware of. Beyond African-American voters, uh, do you see some of these same patterns amongst uh, uh, Latinx or Asian voters? I do, actually. So I broadly see, again, these groups of color less likely to express anger over politics and also similar to African-Americans, these groups not being moved by their anger towards electoral political action to nearly the same degree as white Americans. And the other thing that I see kind of common across these different groups of color is that the emotion state that is kind of most effective at driving political participation is pride, right? This positive sense of enthusiasm and kind of, um, you know, believing in the efficacy of the group or in politics. So, yeah, there are some really interesting distinctions across uh, people of color that distinguish them from white Americans. So with all the activism, just to highlight it again, I know you just said it, but uh, uh, that would not necessarily be a direct through line to say that we are going to see, let's say, off the charts non-white voting in 2020. That's absolutely right. I would not think that there's going to be a through line. I think if we are to expect or hope for any kinds of uh, surges and turnout amongst people of color, it can't simply be about, you know, responding to this kind of moment of vulnerability and threat. Uh, 
but because these groups felt something that they felt enthusiastic about. I think there's been a lot of conversations about who Joe Biden should select for his VP. I definitely think that's a factor that should be considered. Who can, uh, and that's not simply a matter of, you know, the demographics of that VP pick, but who can maybe because of their credible record on advancing racial issues or their ability to speak credibly generate some excitement amongst that critical voting block. Uh, but it's not going to be enough to say, oh, well, look at uh, the threat that's been posed by the current administration. Uh, you know what to do, right? Because that threat was present in 2016, and we saw the numbers go down pretty precipitously across the board for voters of color. Do you think that this is just a, 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 a force that is bigger than any one candidate, that it's not necessarily uh, uh, that Hillary Clinton or... Joe Biden are more or less exciting. It's it's just unless you have, you know, obviously there was a lot of emotion tied up in the idea of Obama being the first black president. And that highlights what you are mentioning, the sense of pride and accomplishment as opposed to protest and anger, that unless you have that, you're just not going to unlock this demographic. Yeah, so certainly Barack Obama's off the charts, I find, in inspiring pride and hope. And of course, not just amongst voters of color, right? But white Democrats as well are also much more likely to express those positive emotions towards Obama. But I also find that voters of color are also willing to express that pride for past Democratic candidates uh, such as Bill Clinton. So you certainly don't need to. So, you know, one thing that we can look at for Bill Clinton and Barack Obama is that they both had a particular way of words, right? They both were able to speak to an audience in a way that could arouse whatever they were looking to arouse, right? Uh, sure. Whether it's a kind of energy or a sense of pride or just a sense of hope or even, you know, a sense of, I'm mad at fact, I'm not going to take this anymore, right? So if Clinton and Biden, for all of the strengths they bring to the table, might not necessarily have that kind of rhetorical quality, how can they surround themselves, not just with the VP pick, but with all the people that can be national surrogates for the campaign, right? People that inspire that kind of energy, that kind of passion. But while Barack Obama was a stink, he certainly wasn't unique in terms of, you know, being able to inspire the kind of positive emotions that can propel people of color's turnout. So it certainly is a replicable model. So it seems like, like the baseline here is sell progress. Don't sell, I mean, so sell the solution and not the problem. And th th that is that is a far more highlighting a a downtrodden community's uh, reality of being downtrodden is less exciting to them in terms of an, uh, getting people into the voting booth than saying, here's how it gets better and I'm exemplary of it. I think so. And I think it's important to even uh, go in deeper and articulate solutions to these problems that are resonant with and consistent with what these communities have been clamoring for and demanding. And so when I think about the kind of campaign messages that might favor the Democratic Party in this election and it's, you know, look to mobilize and energize voters of color, I think about how much signaling can be done especially as they build the party platform by the kinds of voices and perspectives they bring into that conversation about what the party is going to prioritize and think about the ways in which the problems that these communities are dealing with and have been dealing with, right, have been dealt with and analyzed from every angle by people 
directly or indirectly connected to these communities. And oftentimes what frustrates voters of color is that they feel as though whenever people seek to address those problems, they're not bringing those voices to the table. And so we can think about the ways in which this state of protest has put issues on the agenda and even kind of talking points, regardless of how polarizing they are, for instance, to fund the police, yeah. put it on the agenda and force people to talk about it, uh, whether they agree or not, but at least put their position on it, right? And it's like, so we had a seemingly endless slate of democratic debates, right? That yes. feel like they were years ago, but we're just a few months ago. And a lot of the issues we were talking about now weren't being talked about in those debates. And so I think if the Democratic Party wanted to energize voters, they'd recognize that there have been things that have been talked about in these communities that simply had been kind of the third rail of political discourse. You want to make that connection. You want to give a credible cue that you're willing to engage in solutions and not just problems, right? Start bringing in some of the language, the way in which people in the communities have talked about it, right? Start bringing in ideas, even showing a willingness to grapple with ideas that you haven't shown a willingness to grapple with before. And that can inspire a sense of pride, right? You don't need to simply kind of exclusively focus on rosy, rose-colored glasses, right, or optimistic assessments. You can yeah. be kind of honest and bracing with talking about the scope and scale of challenges that may be disproportionately, not exclusively, right, because white people are affected by these same things too to different degrees. But to talk about the disproportionate effects of these kinds of issues for communities of color can actually go a long way because oftentimes these communities feel that, you know, their issues aren't being dealt with in any meaningful way. So even by communicating credibly, you know, I see it and I feel it and I understand it. That can actually go away to generate that sense of pride, even a sense of hope, right? That maybe this time around, the regime will be acting differently than the previous regimes that have made us feel so resigned and skeptical. In your research, have you seen any kind of negative effect of a, and we'll use the example of a white politician, maybe going too hard on an issue or, or coming across as inauthentic by way of pandering? Yeah, it's that's interesting. So I haven't seen directly myself instances in which there's kind of a pushback for white candidates that uh, might be going too far without that credibility. What I often find is the opposite, right? Which is yeah. candidates that simply kind of aren't going far enough, right? Or looking to take issues that, are specifically important to a particular racial group and kind of taking a more universalist approach, right? So, well, let's not focus on this versus the group. Let's think about how a rising tide can lift all boats. And so that shift from targeted focus to universal focus in the rhetoric is one that I deal with. But so I guess the one exception to that is when thinking about Bill Clinton's first candidacy for the president in 1992, when he kind of had all of those symbolic gestures for instance, when he went on Arsenio Hall's late night program yep. and put on his sunglasses, played saxophone, right? Like the way that's often remembered those moments, right? Is that, oh, in some ways Clinton was the first black president, right? He even had that label affixed to him uh, sure. early in his term. But it's important to note, right? So those symbols can actually be effective, right? Because many people would say, well, you know, you're making an effort, right? And you're showing some kind of appreciation for the group that you're willing to try to meet us on our terms. But at the same time, Clinton's success with black voters was not what we think it was in 1992. In 1996, it was quite strong after black voters saw, you know, we might have some chances to have some kind of 
economic disparities be alleviated here. But 1992, I think the Black response was more grounded in skepticism to remember. For all of the goodwill he could earn from those symbolic gestures, people still remember some of the kind of other types of racial appeals he made on his campaign trail as well. So it's interesting to think about this and we saw kind of in 2020, you know, over the year, someone like uh, Tom Sire, right? I think it was in yeah. South Carolina, kind of on stage with rappers and dancing and stuff. I was there. I was there um, with, with Juvenile, the free <laughs> Juvenile concert. It was, it was, an, it was right. among the most amazing political moments I've ever experienced in my life. I can only imagine. I know you're probably not being hyperbolic there. That was no. It was when so when, when when Tom Steyer is backing that ass up uh, on stage <laughs> with Juvenile. You know that you've you've crossed the Rubicon into just a surreal political moment, which is my favorite. Yeah, and so I think you know, black audiences can see it that way. I don't think they need to or feel any kind of compulsion to see that as anything other than absurd, right? And so I think many do laugh it off, many do get kicks of it, and I think others can feel I mean, like, he did he did well, he did come in third. He did come in third in South Carolina, but uh, you know, Tom Steyer bought like way 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 more key endorsement I bought. I'm, I don't want to use the pejorative, but he earned he had for many sure. key endorsements for uh, uh South Carolina for somebody that probably should have done better than he did. But certainly uh, uh, having a an event with uh, uh, free food and juvenile and Yolanda Adams probably didn't hurt in terms of uh, just getting his message out. Absolutely right, and so we can think about how those kinds of symbolic gestures we need not put too much weight on them, but for candidates to even be willing to show, for lack of a better word, that kind of vulnerability, right, to yeah. kind of move away from that stated form and be like, well, I'm not above this. Uh, I know that can make a lot of eyes roll, but it can make a lot of people feel like, well, at least you're willing to kind of break from the playbook a little bit. And maybe that's a signal, right, for people that are never dissatisfied with the playbook. So I think we can certainly see some uh, value uh, in that regard, right? But of course, you know, if Sire was to be able to build momentum, right, then there has to be a point where the rubber meets the road, right? Yeah. Like, okay. At one point, does the substance catch up with the symbolism? So I think anyone that wants to make those some kind of symbolic gestures, can open up some opportunity for people to say, well, let me check this person out. But they're going to be looking for how you back it up. Yeah. <laughs> Figuratively, literally, yep. right? <laughs> With policy prescriptions. Uh, let me ask you one last question here, because you, you mentioned that the success of Bill Clinton with black voters in 1996 was much greater than it was in 1992. And yet in 1994, he authors a crime bill that to this day is extraordinarily controversial uh, amongst uh, critics of mass incarceration, specifically in the black community. Is there any difference generationally in terms of how media saturation, specifically about politics, has created the level of of education, both via the internet and television, in a way that really didn't exist in the early 90s? Yeah, I think so. I think... We can consider the ways in which the framing of that crime bill in real time is positive to black voters who are relying on the kind of traditional limited set of mainstream media outlets, but also importantly, relying on black political figures nationally and locally who are largely in lockstep support of this bill. 
So I think that's really critical, right? They're like the Congressional Black Caucus is supporting it. Yeah. You know, black religious figures and community leaders are supporting it because they're seeing, right, the weight of violent crime in their neighborhoods. And they're thinking this is going to uh, deal with that, right? So I think a lot of those people came around as they saw the actual debilitating effects of this bill and say, wow, this is such an overreach, right? And this has kind of created this new world of incarceration. But of course... We can think about current generations that have both directly to the effects of that rapid intensification of mass incarceration to be exposed, for sure, to new perspectives and ideas beyond traditional kind of, uh, you know, elite channels about what the effects of the bill were and also what some of the kind of nitty gritty details of the bill were. Right. And so I think that exposure to perspectives and the ability for people to uh, not just hear from their community figures how to feel about this kind of piece of legislation, but, you know, how to even feel from people that have been affected by mass incarceration. Those kinds of opening ups of dialogue can be impactful. And I think the other thing that makes this new media landscape so important is that there's certainly huge detractors of the bill at the time who were clearly drowned out. But it's hard for those distractors to be as drowned out nowadays because they can come together, right? And they can kind of amplify one another. And, you know, it doesn't take much to shift a conversation. When I teach my media and politics class, I always shock the uh, students when I ask them to gauge, right? How many people kind of have active, active Twitter accounts? What, what's the percentage of Americans with active Twitter accounts, right? Yeah. And it's only like 7%, right? Like it's a, it's a huge, kind of a small number of people. And that's obviously pivoted towards people in certain industries, people from certain class demographics and backgrounds. Sure. Kind of the defining elements of our time. So I think it's really important for the way in which we think about not only how we have new diverse voices, but also kind of amplification of voices that have never necessarily been able to be amplified before. We can really shift the discourse and allow people to just be more scrutinizing and more critical of things, whether it's in the past or even in real time, that would seem to typically be framed as having, you know, universal widespread support. Well said. And uh, I'll tell you what, we're at the end of our time here, but uh, it has been a great conversation. Of course, my guest has been Davin Phoenix, an associate professor of political science at UC Irvine, specializing in race, emotions and political behavior in U.S. politics. He's the author of The Anger Gap, How Race Shapes Emotions in Politics. Follow him on Twitter. We're only 7% of the population, yet 99% of the media are at Davin underscore Phoenix, uh, uh, Davin, thank you so much for coming on, and I heartily hope that at some point in your lifetime, James Dolan sells the Knicks. <laughs> Gotta keep pushing the second for the good fight. <laughs> <laughs> Politics. And that will wrap it up for us today and this week. I want to thank our Titanic $10 tier Modesto's own Logan Cisco, Thor, NH Plumpkin, Chad, Headphones Neil, Water Eye Scoop, MacBook Pro, Dallas Danger Taylor, Middle Age Mike, DTNS, Hacked 5, Brad, Utah, Frozen Summer, Zack and Cheese, Captain Bunzo, Zombie Doc, Berkeley Steven, your boy Craig, TroubleFilm.com, Robert, Mr. Tallyman, D Laser, I Pooped My Pants, Severio, Martin, Alec, Government Unfiltered, Spawn! Jerry Tolbert, Gamer Goo, Andres, Archie, Jay Milius, The Gen, Emily, Adam, Zach, 
uh, Olin and Angela, Christopher, DL, Brian, Ryan, insert scoop name, Miranda, Robert, Brandon, Herschel, John Terica, Glenn, Wolf, Brand, Chili Scoop, Kevin, Dustin, Daycat, Richard, Nick, Mike, Lindsay, Angela, Mato, Random Complexity, what? Deadman, and Andrew. If you would like to be a part of their illustrious ranks, then you head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. That is where you support this show. $3 Club gets two bonus podcasts each and every week. You want to write in? You do so at theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Be part of our Friday mailbags. Follow me on Twitter at Justin R. Young. And we got another uh, another crazy week coming up next week. Oh, 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 late breaking news. Donald Trump has canceled his rally in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. He says it is because of a tropical depression. And there is a tropical depression, but it was supposed to miss. But I don't know whether or not you'd want to bet on it, specifically when Donald Trump had the attendance issues of Tulsa once. It's a fluke two times, and it is a pattern. We'll find out what the fallout is when I next speak to you. Until then, a reminder that some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more. Man, they're talking about politics, but this is the only show that dares to talk about three. Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>